Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 17, 2017, we spotlight a recent World Policy blog post on the controversial reconciliation and forgiveness legislation that threatens still fragile democracy in Tunisia, birthplace of the so-called Arab Spring. We'll also spotlight top stories in the WPJ Fall issue, cover line Constructing Family. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. Nearly seven years have passed. The anniversary is December 10, since the death of a young Tunisian named Mohamed Bouazizi who lit himself on fire to protest the corruption and repression of his North African country. Wazizi died soon afterwards, but the regime of Tunisia's dictator, Zine El Abidine Ben Ali, died with him, taken down about a month later by what came to be known as the Jasmine Revolution. More amazing still was the fact that Tunisia's revolution spread, ultimately toppling dictators in Libya and Egypt, bringing people into the streets of Bahrain, Jordan, and Yemen, and touching off civil war that rages to this day in Syria. Given what we know now, was all this a good thing? Tens of thousands are dead, most of them innocent civilians, and for the most part the Arab Middle East is still in the grip of repressive single-party regimes of various stripes, ranging from puritanical to murderous to merely repressive. Optimists hold out hope for gradual reforms in places like Jordan or Morocco, or for an evolution toward more liberty that might go along with the wealth created in the Gulf Emirates. But generally speaking, it's a pretty miserable legacy. So what of Tunisia? Since 2010, it's been held up as the great exception to all the failed efforts at democratic form that touched off the Arab Spring. But can its revolution really be considered a success? Last week, for instance, Tunisia's government yet again extended a state of emergency, which curbs individual rights in the name of anti-terrorist measures. It's been in place since a spate of such attacks in 2015. And a lot indeed has gone wrong. Having initially elected a pro-democracy dissident to lead them, the country is now led by a technocrat, Yusuf Shahid, who has launched an impressive anti-corruption campaign. But democracy has been challenged from the start. Buffeted by the violence and chaos in neighboring Libya and a porous Saharan border that is an easy mark for weapons smugglers and terrorists, the attacks on resorts popular with European tourists damaged a key sector of Tunisia's economy. And this year, the U.S. makes it worse by cutting desperately needed aid to the country by nearly 70% from 167 million to 54 million in 2018. But even with all this, Tunisia's revolution has survived. A poll conducted in April by an American NGO found that most Tunisians still believe that democracy is preferable to all other forms of government. Two-thirds of the population also do not consider that Tunisia is yet a full democracy. That sounds about right. The movement set in motion by a young man's suicide in 2010 has set down some shallow roots at home, even if it failed to take abroad. But in the face of aid cuts and continued chaos next door in Libya, and a tourist economy stunted by terrorism, there is still cause for concern. Without more help from established democracies, Tunisia's incredibly important experiment could falter, proving as ephemeral as the jasmine blossoms that skitter across the streets of Bezert, Tunis, and Jerba. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran.
You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I think that the gains of the revolution are at stake right now. Uh, instead of establishing the truth, People in power are doing everything to hide the truth, and it's so sad for Tunisia. It is so the sound of street demonstrations in Tunisia six years ago that led to the so-called Jasmine Revolution against entrenched dictatorship in that country, followed by the wider, if largely temporary, democratic Arab Spring. Then Tunisian activist and blog Arlina Benmeni, last month on a new law ostensibly meant to promote national reconciliation by giving amnesty in many cases of Tunisia's notorious pre-revolution corruption. Instead, the legislation has sparked stormy debates in Parliament and a new round of protests in the streets. That controversy in practically the only Arab country where Arab Spring democracy successfully took root is examined in a recent World Policy blog post by Amna Gwilali, Tunisia Director for Human Rights Watch, the headline is, New Reconciliation Law Threatens Tunisia's Democracy, and we talked about it the other day for this podcast. I'm Nogaleli. Welcome to World Policy on Air. Hello. Thank you for hosting me. Uh, the Jasmine Revolution began with the self-immolation of a street vendor who felt mistreated by the local government, but it was fueled by widespread anger over many national policies, economic conditions, and corruption under a 20-year dictatorship. Talk about the 2012 Commission report detailing just how extensive that corruption was. The 2012 uh, report from the Commission, which was uh, put in place after the uprising in order to examine uh, the extent of corruption uh, in Tunisia, has found that um, there was widespread corruption, uh, which was instituted at the highest levels of the state uh, authorities. Uh, there was corruption which was uh, rampant throughout the system, and uh, many of the uh, you know, ministers and people acquainted with the Ben Ali family were very much involved in this uh, widespread corruption. The uh, commission's report unraveled the ways in which uh, corruption worked, how uh, very high-level officials inside the state have facilitated the corruption, how they have given to the uh, different uh, cronies of the regime, uh, you know, all the advantages uh, in order to um, have uh, very uh, much gains which were illegal, how they um, helped them to get uh, hold of uh, some of the wealth uh, of the Tunisian, uh, you know, state. Remind us of the reforms and the wide range of new rights that Tunisia enacted after the revolution. Indeed, after the revolution, uh, which, uh, as you uh, put it, was prompted by uh, very deeply rooted uh, frustrations and grievances and demands for justice, for human rights, for uh, economic uh, equality, etc. There were, after the, after the revolution uh, in 2011, several steps that were undertaken by the successive Tunisian government in order to uh, respond to these demands, at least very partially. Uh, there was, for example, the adoption in 2014 uh, of a new constitution, uh, which was hailed internationally as uh, being very progressive, uh, as uh, upholding many of the international uh, human rights uh, 
you know, uh, principles and uh, offering to the Tunisian uh, people and to the Tunisian uh, citizens uh, their rights. Uh, and their uh, their right to freedom, their right to justice, uh, and to participate in the public debate. Uh, so freedom of speech and everything else. Uh, there was also um, the, there were several uh, free and transparent elections, especially the elections that took place in 2014 uh, for uh, electing the new uh, legislative assembly and electing a new president. Uh, also, these elections were considered are considered as a step forward for the consolidation of democracy. However, despite all this progress, there were also several uh, setbacks in this uh, tr democratic transition, uh, especially given this new law uh, that we are talking about, about, you know, administrative reconciliation. Well, tell us, when and how did the new president first propose and explain this new reconciliation law as necessary to, quote, improve the investment climate, unquote? The president of the Republic, Beji Qaitsipti, uh, proposed this new law in um, March 2015, um, he, it was uh, during the celebration of the uh, Independence Day, uh, and uh, the president at that time uh, said that he is uh, proposing this law in order to uh, help the uh, Tunisian people uh, break with, I mean, uh, heal the wounds of the past. Uh, he is proposing it in order to uh, give a new uh, impetus to the economy and, and to um, help the uh, investors um, ha gain new confidence in the Tunisian uh, economic uh, uh, in the Tunisian economy. Um, the, the, the declarations from the president at that time sparked. Uh, a lot of controversy, especially that the president had already uh, made many, many other declarations um, very much against the transitional justice process, against uh, prosecuting those who have been involved in uh, human rights violations or corruption from the former regime, and uh, calling for, uh, you know, for, for um, forgetting all of this and turning the page of the past in order to uh, go to the future and in order to, uh, you know, uh, go ahead with the democracy. So that was his sense at that time, and he uh, moved forward with the law uh, by proposing it to the parliament in uh, um, December 2015, uh, and then the, the law was taken over by the parliament. The law that ultimately passed created two categories of civil servants involved in corruption. What were they, and what was the stated purpose of drawing such a distinction? So the distinction that was established in the law uh, is between civil servants who allegedly committed acts of corruption without uh, personally benefiting uh, from uh, these acts, and those who uh, embezzled public funds for their own gain. So the law distinguishes between those who put money in their pockets, uh, so to say, and those who just signed orders or facilitated the, um, the acts of corruption and uh, embezzlement without putting anything in their own pockets and without benefiting from it. Um, uh, so, uh, and for the, the first group, so those who have benefited from uh, corruption personally and financially, they would be excluded from the remit of the law, and those who have just 
uh, signed a paper to facilitate the corruption or, uh, you know, facilitate the corruption in any other way would uh, be amnestied uh, from any prosecution and from, uh, and, and there would be, uh, uh, be an amnesty, a general amnesty uh, for them um, in order to clear their uh, judicial records from uh, any, uh, you know, prosecution or from any wrongdoing. Uh, the problem uh, with this distinction is that it is a total illusion. Uh, the law does not set up a clear way or mechanism to identify uh, those who have allegedly profited from corruption. So uh, to, I to identify them, it's not something that is so simple. It's not just by way of declaration from the law. You have to investigate these acts of corruption in order to uh, identify those who have served uh, the system and those who have benefited from the system. Uh, but the, the, the law is totally silent on such a mechanism uh, and does not separate those who uh, have, uh, 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 have had ill-gotten gains from those who had simply executed orders. Uh, in addition to that, it does not cover indirect gains such as uh, promotions or benefits for a person's family. So um, as a result of that, it is really very difficult uh, that the law will be an effective tool uh, against uh, those who have benefited from corruption uh, or who have been accomplices to misappropriation. So this distinction at the end of the day is an illusion, and the law will be a blanket amnesty for everyone, including those who have gained something personally from corruption. In fact, you say the new law could turn perpetrators into victims and actually reward them. That's uh, the turning uh, perpetrators into victims um, in the law is the most ironic aspect of this law. Uh, because what the law does is not only that uh, it will amnesty those who have uh, been uh, in, involved in corruption uh, at the highest levels in the administration, uh, but it also requires the state to repay them the damages uh, or to uh, give them back the money that they had to uh, give back to the state uh, when they were uh, prosecuted or when they were tried, because there were several trials after the revolution and uh, several civil servants were, um, had, had to uh, pay some damages to the, uh, to the state as a result of, their, uh, of these uh, judicial trials. Now, what they had paid to the state, because they were involved in corruption, etc., the state had to pay it back to them. So they become victims at the end, they, those who uh, have been involved in corruption and found guilty by the judiciary are now compensated back by the state. And this is something that is uh, quite, um, you know, ironic and very grotesque at the end of the day because uh, it gives the corrupt uh, civil servants uh, in the administration uh, a status of victim, which is really something problematic. On a broader scale, you see the new law adversely impacting the work of Tunisia's Truth and Dignity Commission. Explain the commission's mandate and how it may be undermined. 
The Truth and Dignity Commission uh, was established in uh, uh, late 2013 and started working in 2014. Uh, this commission was entrusted by uh, the law to uh, examine and investigate past human rights violations, including economic violations uh, that were committed on a large scale by the former regime, and to, uh, hold, to, to transfer some of the most egregious cases to the judiciary. Uh, the Commission has also the mandate to investigate and uh, determine the perpetrators of acts of corruption and embezzlement of public funds. Uh, so the, 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 the this commission has really a very important role in the democratic transition. Uh, it has to establish the truth of what happened. It has to uh, identify the perpetrators, and it has to transfer cases to the judiciary. And at the end of the day, after all, doing all of that, it has to uh, propose uh, reforms of the uh, system so that we don't go, well, we don't have a relapse into authoritarianism anymore. And so uh, its role is really key, and it has the mandate to examine these corruption cases. However, the law, the um, administrative uh, reconciliation law, withdraws such power uh, on investigating corruption from the Truth and Dignity Commission and gives another commission, which is not independent and not uh, really uh, very effective, the right to uh, you know, give these kind of amnesties. So this law threatens the entire uh, transitional justice process at the end of the day because it doesn't, it, the, the commission will be uh, weakened by such a law. It will not be able to investigate cases of corruption anymore. It will not be able to identify the perpetrators of these uh, acts of corruption on a wide scale. And that, and that uh, this will hamper its ability to establish the truth of what happened and to give to the uh, Tunisian citizens uh, their right to know what happened. So uh, this is all, all the, this law will uh, really have, uh, will impair uh, the whole uh, transitional justice process. And how do you see the new law affecting trust in government generally, the absence of which helped spark the revolution six years ago? Yeah, ironically, uh, the law's uh, objective as stated in its preamble is to uh, uh, restore confidence in the administration. That's the stated um, objective of the law. However, um, it's uh, very uh, clear that what the law will do is totally the opposite. The law will entrench corruption inside the administration. It will give the uh, corrupt um, civil servants who have been really at the heart of corruption, the sense of impunity, and uh, it will give them the sense that they are uh, becoming more powerful in the new uh, system. It will also signal to other civil servants um, the leniency of the government and the authorities toward corruption since amnesty uh, was the, 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 uh, since there, there is amnesty for corruption. So it will do exactly the opposite of what uh, the uh, law in its preamble says about restoring confidence in the, uh, in the, the, in the administration. 
I see that before the new law was signed by the president at the end of October, it was referred to the nation's temporary constitutional commission. Could that body still rule against it, or, or is there some other path to rejecting or revising it? The uh, temporary constitutional commission has already examined the law. It was supposed to rule on the constitutionality of this uh, administrative reconciliation law. Uh, and um, unfortunately, the commission was split. Um, this uh, constitutional commission is composed of uh, six uh, members, and they were split uh, three uh, against it and three for the, um, uh, the administrative reconciliation law. So uh, this meant that there was no real uh, constitutionality, you know, examination of this law, and uh, it was then transferred by way of law to the President of the Republic, who uh, signed it and promulgated this uh, uh, administrative reconciliation law. Again, another uh, irony of the system. The President of the Republic who had uh, proposed the law initially and was uh, the, the, the very fierce uh, promoter of the law is the one who is signing it uh, as, uh, as if it was a constitutional law. And this is something really problematic. So now we don't have um, recourses against this law anymore except uh, before the administrative tribunal. Uh, that's the only maybe, uh, you know, new recourse because uh, the, uh, the law was adopted in a way that was not uh, really uh, respectful of the procedures. Uh, so it will be on the basis of procedural breaches that uh, the, a challenge uh, to this law could be uh, lodged before the administrative tribunal. Do you see the street protests and other opposition to this law leading to yet another revolution or at least a change of government leadership in, in the next election or, or even before? The adoption of this law uh, was met with uh, quite fierce uh, protests on the streets in Tunisia. There was uh, uh, a very important uh, opposition movement uh, created against this law, uh, a, a movement called Manishim Semach, I will not uh, forget or forgive. Uh, and uh, this movement has, uh, you know, gained... Uh, a lot of uh, team during these months and during these two years after the announcement of the law, uh, but unfortunately did not really, um, it was not, you know, successful in uh, um, rejecting the law or not, uh, not allowing it to pass. So um, despite all the popular protests, the law was passed, and this is, uh, I, don't see, I don't think it is likely that there will be other protests against the law since now it is uh, already uh, passed, but the, the, the movement of protests will continue against the policies of the government, uh, against corruption, etc., uh, and it might lead to not a new revolution, but something uh, changing maybe in the political landscape, especially that we are uh, about to hold uh, municipal elections, so uh, it will be a very important point uh, of contention in the uh, elections. Amna Galali, thank you. Thank you very much. Amna Galali is Tunisia Director for Human Rights Watch. Her recent post on the World Policy blog is New Reconciliation Law Threatens Tunisia's Democracy.
Featured in the WPJ Fall issue, you'll find articles about defending families from terrorist recruitment, about the drawbacks to Latin America's responsible paternity laws, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.